cousins. Talk about entertainment and creative living. Living. I'm Vince. I'm Connorissimo. That's my Italian name. Uh, it's been proven. You heard it here first, yes. folks. Uh, my Irish Connor. ass. <laughs> <laughs> Branding himself. A re- little bit of a rebranding here. Little, little Connorissimo. Bit. Just uh, a tad. Connorissimo. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Well, you might have already heard and seen in the description for our podcast that Connor's a bit of an actor and that I'm a bit of an author. And last week, we got to talk a little bit about Connor's field, the lifestyle of an actor, especially with regards to Broadway and musicals and plays. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there's a lot more to dive into with that and a lot more things to explore. But this week, today, we're going to talk a little bit more about what it's like to be an author and what that means for people who are looking to write books and looking to publish them, especially nowadays, and what the business is like and all the things that I'm slowly starting to figure out as I uh, have published and gone through that uh, process myself. So, Connor, I wanted to talk to you almost. I I know you're not writing a book right now or necessarily even trying to, but for the sake of our listeners, I wanted to talk to you as if you had a book idea that you really wanted to write and really wanted to publish, and you're going in cold to the publishing industry and trying to find the best avenue to put it out there. Awesome. So if you have that picture in your head, it's just in for it. fun, what what goofy book uh, is on your mind right I now? I think I'm, uh, it's the story of... I'm looking around my room for inspiration. It's the story of <laughs> a brave little uh, toenail clipper. Oh God! Who, who is is sent? This is not a children's book, by the way. This is a full adult, <laughs> raunchy. This is a this is not a young adult. It's raunchy? adult. Yes, raunchy. It's a toenail clipper. Sounds more. Let me finish the idea. <laughs> Let me finish. This is genius right now. It's a toenail clipper who is assigned to clip the nails of all the leaders in the world, like just big leaders. These are the best toenail clippers <laughs> in the world. And then the CIA pulls him aside and is like, you need to get rid of some people. So this toenail clipper is now an assassin for the CIA. (laughs) And he is like half an inch long. (laughs) 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 All right. And it's called. Oh, dang. It's called. Toes of Grace. Toes of Grace. Toes of Grace. Oh, gosh. Wow. Because the. the person he's trying to assassinate's name is Grace. It's an evil female the president dictator of the president a dictator. Of, yes, yeah, a dictator who they're trying to kill. Well, they, they okay, need, basically out. I am dying to hear this story mm-hmm. about Grace uh, getting getting unfortunately killed by a toenail clipper. I guess it's more about the toenail clipper. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. All right, so there's there's something to work with there. You got a you got a work of fiction called Toes of Glory. Grace. All right, Toes of Grace. Toes of Grace, not Toes of Glory. Blades of Glory. <laughs> toes of Toes of Grace. Um, so okay, so a hypothetical. You're an author. You got a fiction book you want to put out there. You're in a boat that I was just a couple of years ago, and there's a lot of things to break down in the publishing industry. And similar to what you did, I could go into the history of the publishing industry. But really what you need to know is that there are agents, there are publishing houses, publishers, there are bookstores, and then there are authors. Those are the key elements that have been around since this industry really picked up and started around the time of the printing press coming out and when it, you know, it was easier to make it into an industry. Hmm. Uh, basically, basically, just a fun fact for you, most publishers take about 90 to 95% of your profits Whoa! as a book. They also own the rights to your book. And this is because publishers, you know, especially the big ones, you know, like off the top of your head, you probably know Penguin, Simon & Schuster, all the ones that ring a bell like that, right? Well, they have access and trust with these book distributors like a Barnes & Noble or another bookstore, bookstores that have been around for centuries even, They have direct access to that. And you as an author, even if you have a really, really good book, you can't just put your book on shelves just because you finished it and it's good. Mm -hmm. 
So that's where the publisher comes in, and the agent's the one who vets for the publisher. They're the doorman for the publisher in the same way that an acting agent would vet and be the doorman for a production that's going on with with acting, right? Mm -hmm. So, Connor, knowing that, seeing that, does that sound like, man, I'm really excited to go be an author? No, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) For me, that's terrifying. (laughs) 100%. 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think I'm making this point really early on to illustrate to people that you know, you you have a great book idea. You have a you have a writing talent. It doesn't mean the industry just unfolds for you and opens for you. Mm. And historically, and still currently, a lot of the industry is structured that way. And it's a really tough business. So you can't just do it because you want the money, the people to read your book, blah blah blah. It's got to be a real love of getting your story out there and a real love of the craft and the the smaller moments that make you excited. But What is exciting, and the whole point of hope in this episode is that there are lots of things changing in the publishing industry today for guys like you, guys like me, and people who don't necessarily have the means or the ability to get access to those big publishing houses. There's a lot of ways they can publish, and um, I think think it's fun to break it down and kind of figure out what's the best path for somebody who's listening right now who may want to publish a book. So, uh, Connor, um, what do you think when you hear somebody has been self-published? What do you think of that? Mm. Uh, I, I know a couple of people who are self-published. It's the most... Uh, I, I don't know how to explain it. I know what it is in my head. They put out the book. They are selling it. They're doing everything. They've done all the job of a publisher they've done all the job of marketing they've done everything and they're putting it out and i guess it wouldn't it just means that it is entirely on the author's shoulders everything is on the author's shoulders all the profits go to the author but whenever i hear someone's like i self-published a book i the uh, uh, maybe this is bad on my part but i think oh you couldn't get a publisher that's always the kind of the thing. So it's it doesn't feel as legitimate. Right, right. Of course it is, but it doesn't feel as legitimate, and it's also, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no. You make a very strong point, and I think uh, that's kind of how I felt about self-publishing the entire time I've gone through this process, too. And I think there's a lot to unpack there because, on the one hand, you're spot on. There's a huge amount of responsibility on people who are self-publishing, and there's a huge amount of control, and... There's often big payoffs. There are some self-published authors who are doing very, very well and put out very, very good material. Hmm. And they get 100% of their profits because they're the ones who input all the money and the time and the work to make that happen. So that's got to be hugely rewarding. On the flip side, you have an author who doesn't necessarily have a support system, who's completely doing this on their own, who may have an idea like Toes of Grace, and Toes of Grace, that if, if they're the only ones idea. putting that idea out, uh, yes, while, of course. I mean, it, it's an ingenious idea. <laughs> and, <laughs> but if you didn't get it, somebody to edit it, Connor, it's going to be terrible, okay? What? It's not going to be good. Impossible. 100%. It's a big, long book about a toenail clipper. You better make it work, all right? And so you can't do that all. People don't want to read 800 pages about a toenail clipper? I'm going 800, well, 900 pages. That's the goal here. <laughs> That's a real book, Vince. Oh, 100%. 100%. Uh, wouldn't devalue that for the world. It would just cost you thousands of dollars to print a 900-page book about <laughs> toenail clippers. So have one fun with One toenail that. clipper. There's one, Vince. <laughs> one toenail clipper Named. in a world of human beings. Yeah. Oh, it's it's just the one anthropomorphic thing. It's not even anthropomorphic. It's the one talking inanimate object in the world, and no one cares. It's not. Um, it's not magic. It just happens. Not sus to talk. at all. It's not sus, and it like I no I'm holding toenail clippers. It talks like this. Only Vince can see it. It's like, hey, how's it going? You know, like exactly how you think a toenail clipper will talk. That's how it talks. Yeah. I assure you, I even though the I'm the only one seeing that right now, too, bro. You, well, you copyrighted it here and now exactly. just by talking about it, Connor. Damn. <laughs> well, 
I, I think I think you'd be I think you'd be kidding yourself to say that a book like that, that ambitious, doesn't need a support system behind it. You're right. And the truth is, if you're a self-published author, author, you can still get that. I think there's a stigma around being a self-published author that you hit the head on the nail. You know, there's a lot of kind of crappy books that get put out, a lot of bad covers, a lot of bad concept, a lot of poorly edited material. And that's mainly because a lot of the authors who believe in their book and are putting them out and really trying their hardest don't necessarily have the means, the financial means, or the awareness of the industry to go, I should be putting a couple thousand dollars, about $5,000 at least, to make this book marketable out there in the world as a self-published author. And if an author is true to true about their situation and is able to pull back and say, I can do that, there's a lot of resources for them. There's a lot of professional editors, a lot of professional uh, layout designers, cover artists that they can go and find and hire to go and, and make their book reality. Now, so you have that on the one hand, right? You have the self-publishing. And what you're saying is, oh, well, there's the pro. There's the pro of control. There's a pro of profits. And then on the other hand, you have traditional publishing, which I broke down earlier. There's the pro of easier access to bookstores, a lot more polished material comes out of traditional publishing but the con is you lose 90 percent of your profits you lose control you lose the media rights you can't go and go make that movie and get the money off of somebody buying your script unless you've negotiated really really well with the traditional publisher to make that happen so there's a lot of pros and cons to both of those scenarios but that's sort of what's been the publishing playing field for a while now connor i want to throw something back your way hit me how many People, how many book copies, let's say, do you think a traditional publisher or an agent who's a connected to a traditional publisher wants you as an author they're looking to manage? How many copies in the first year do they think that you should be selling for them to make it worth their time to take you on as an author? Like, like, you, I'm publishing Toes of Grace and I. I, the author, have to sell a certain amount for them to take me seriously? Right. They have to, before they even take you on, they have to reasonably believe that you can sell blank number of copies over the first year of that book being out. How many do you think that is? Jeez. See, I feel like if I guess too high, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at that crossroads. Do I guess low? Because <laughs> obviously it's hard. Because my brain wants to say like 100. But... My brain also wants to say like 500. So we'll meet in the middle. How about 250? Connor, I hate to break it to you, but it's about five to 10,000 minimum. What? Now that's Whoa. on average. It's a wildly high number, isn't it? That's on average. That's as a whole, not saying there aren't authors who are picked up by agents who don't have that kind of audience base and just have a really good book and get it out there. Not saying that's not possible, but on a whole for an agent or a publisher to take a gamble on you as an author, you have to reasonably already have an audience that can buy your book to that high of a degree over the course of the year. That takes, I mean, even for somebody with a huge audience base, let's say you have a really big Instagram following, not a hundred percent of your Instagram following is going to buy your book. If it's it comes true. out, if you run a podcast and it has, thousands upon thousands of listeners only a only a percentage of them are going to buy that book so even then you have to be in this select level of people for them to be like oh yeah for sure we'll publish your book be anything below that it's a little iffy so you have to sell the book for forty dollars well <laughs> i'm um, kidding please I would, <laughs> there, what book there is, is there's a strategy with that there's gotta be one like I'm looking at, I literally, the biggest book I have is Stephen King's It, and that was a dollar on Amazon. Yeah. Well, that's selling it. Well, you got to think, that's too, a, about I, the, I got the nature of that book. It's an older book. It's uh, it's something that's going to sell well, so they don't need to price it too high. That's true. You know, that would just Very be a true. barrier for people buying it. But isn't that fast? I mean, that's really genuinely a daunting number. Yeah, that's crazy. Whereas most authors, self-published, traditionally published, doesn't even matter. Even the ones they take a gamble on in traditionally published sometimes only meet this metric. Most of them only really publish 
less than 250 hmm. in their first year. That metric you're talking about. That's that's more the range that a lot of authors operate in. You know, the 25 to 250 copy range over the course of a year. That's really, really common. That's where most books kind of sit that's and play. Even really, really good books. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard. It's hard to get people to read. It's hard to turn out that interest. But that in, in the same way that Broadway is selected to just a few streets, mm-hmm. you know, one street Broadway, but like off Broadway too, you know, you yeah, know yeah, in yeah, the, yeah. Same, the same way we're talking about that. It's really centrally located. The publishing industry is really built very similarly. Only a few key, huge publishing houses that have that automatic go-to with these bookstores that can actually get people access into there. So, so Toes of, Toes of Grace. Toes of Grace. Toes of Grace, you, you see. Okay. It doesn't have that built-in audience. You know, you may be a listener out there who has reasonably can meet somewhere near that audience uh, number for your book. And if that's you and you want to traditionally publish and you want more people to do the work for you, then by all means, go ahead and try. And even if you don't have that audience and you believe in your book, go ahead and query agents. But do not lie to yourself about what's reasonably going to happen and don't put all your hope and stock that that book is going to get picked up because it'll bite you in the butt and it will hurt your feelings <laughs> if you aren't aware of that kind of reality and why a lot of celebrity books, let's say, get published, even though they're not as good as some of the amazing fiction that's being written by self-published authors. Mm-hmm. Right? So... So toes of toes of a uh, toes of grace. Does it seem like you even have an option of which route to go with? Yeah, I'm gonna self-publish. I can't get a freaking publisher. Yeah, well, <laughs> way to go for keeping it real. I can't sell <laughs> five thousand books of toes of grace. I gotta change the title, and the cover is of just a toenail clipper sitting on a table. <laughs> That's the cover of my book. Well, I'm buying it, so you got at least one copy. I got sold one, there, and then no, my family <laughs> wouldn't buy it. They'd be like, Connor, no, <laughs> no, we're not supporting <laughs> no you in this endeavor. Of... This one's bad. <laughs> Do you have a foot fetish, Connor? <laughs> I think you have a problem, Connor. I think I might have. A this problem. is just a manifestation of that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, so that's so it seems that. You, like a lot of authors who don't have that kind of audience just built in normally, or who maybe do try querying agents but just aren't one of those, you know, lucky few or really, really talented few who get spotted and picked up anyway, despite that risk. If that's not you, guess what? You're in the vast majority of authors who are writing books nowadays. And the fun thing is, you're writing at a really good time. Because not only do you have those two options with their pros and cons, Over the past five to ten years, more like even just five years, there's been multiple different avenues that are somewhere in the middle. There's now a lot of smaller indie publishing houses that operate really similar to those big publishing houses. Maybe they take less of your profits because they know they don't have that same kind of access. So maybe that strikes a real balance, you know? If you're not guaranteed to sell this many copies, but you don't want to be a self-published author because either, you know, what are the reasons? You don't want to have to put up the money yourself. Maybe you don't have the money. You don't want the stigma that's often associated with self-published authors, which you've talked about, which, once again, I'll say is not always true. But there are those authors who do fall into that, and there's a reason that stigma is there because people tackle things they don't have the means to handle Mm -hmm. and make a book that doesn't come out the best. Or you don't want to be a self-published author or a traditionally published author just for whatever personal reasons you got going on. It doesn't work for you. There's a lot of stuff in the middle, and... This is peeling back a little bit, speaking from my own experience. I had a book where I was in the same bind as you. I was really young when I started writing it, so I had really like high ambitions and a real misunderstanding of the industry, and I kept querying agents and thinking, oh, yeah, of course they're going to pick it up because my book's just getting better and better every year that I'm writing it. And at some point, the agents are going to say yes, and it's going to be on bookshelves everywhere. New York Times bestseller. Woo! Doesn't happen like that for almost everybody on planet Earth. So... (laughs) What am I left with? I'm left with my own toes of grace. For me, it's called it's called Iberian Claim, and it's a book that I was looking to put out just about a year ago now. So what I ended up finding was something that's really similar to like an indie publisher, where it's in the middle. And I'm not going to name drop them or anything or try to promote them because I actually do work for them now after publishing. So I feel like that kind of conflict yeah. with uh, I don't really know what the laws are, but I, I'm not going to try and market them to you. I'm just saying this is what worked best for me. I'll bleep it if you was, put it on there. <laughs> if I accidentally let it out, if you let it slip, I'll my poster was a Simon and Schuster. Oh no, <laughs> just kidding. It wasn't Simon and Schuster. Um, 
basically, I found one that's called a hybrid publisher. I don't know if that's the overall industry term for what it is, or maybe that's just their terminology. But basically, that's that's somebody that takes the tools that are available to self-published authors through formats like Amazon, online websites, retailers. They take those different resources that are there for self-published authors, those freelance editors, those layout designers, and they hire them for their staff. And they are an, essentially a publisher, but because they're sort of letting you take the reins in a lot of ways, they don't keep any of your profits. They just get a certain amount of a capped you know, fee, whatever that base rate is that they need. And once they make that back, all the profits are yours, all the rights are yours. For me, that's what worked the best. For some people, that may not work the best, and I, I'm not trying to say that it would, but the fun thing that it helped me realize by going through that process and sort of biting the bullet and being like, okay, my book's not going to be published by Penguin. My, book's, my book, I'm not at that level. I am not a celebrity author. Mm-hmm. My book has a life and a path to actually be published by a publisher, which was something that was important to me, and it's not important to everyone to have that ability to say, hey, I was published by an actual publisher. Yeah. To me, it was important, so I went that route. And I didn't have to give up very much. I had to do a lot of fundraising on my own, which we can kind of dig into. But to you, Connor, somebody who has written your masterpiece, your masterclass. Magnum opus. Just as a personal, just as a personal question, what sounds more, more fun to navigate, a better, better way to navigate for you? Is it the risk of, ooh, I don't necessarily know if this publisher is going to work for me. They're smaller. There's maybe a little bit more to give up, but they have more of the resources that I don't necessarily have to pay for up front, and I don't have to go to the, do the work of digging for editors. Or do you like complete freedom and control? Because I think those are both completely valid, and I don't think one answer is necessarily the right one. I'm just curious, as in your head, what sounds like something you would rather do if you were writing a book? I feel like complete freedom and control is great. Like, yeah, on paper, that's great. But... You need that you need that kick in the ass. I feel like so I feel like to me I'd pick the publisher even if it meant less freedom because of the plus that comes with that. I am yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's super valid and I'd say for somebody who answers the flip side to that, if they do want complete control and freedom, just make sure that you're actually paying for and putting, investing in those resources that the people who are picking those publishers are going to have because those publishers have popped up. There are indie publishers, small publishing houses, hybrid publishers that are doing that work. So if you're going to self-publish and have your book compete in this industry or at least get out there in any sort of meaningful way to some audience beyond the people you know, you're going to have to uh, make sure you really got those editing techniques knocked down, whether you're doing them yourself or paying for them. I highly recommend paying for them. So... That's just sort of the path that self-publishers have to figure out versus hybrid publishers or small publishers. And I mm-hmm. think uh, and, and I think for those authors that do end up self-publishing, that do end up going with a small publishing house, here's the beauty, beautiful thing, Connor. Here's where there's a lot of hope for people who are like, oh, my God, I really want my book to be published by Penguin and to be on the New York Times bestselling list. Yeah. And I really cannot separate that from my head. When you publish with a small publisher, most small publishers, or self-publish, your book can make an audience as best as it can, and you can query afterwards. You can query agents. You can go to publisher and say, hey, look, my book, I self-published it. I published it through Yada Yada Publisher. It's selling. It sold uh, 1,000 copies this year. Mm. It sold 500. Ah. Take a gamble on me. Get into those markets, those bookstores that I haven't tapped into yet. Look at what this book can do. It's good. Read it. And what, what that does is it puts you, it builds in that audience based off of that book. Whereas other people may have a podcast or a show they're on or they're, they're, you know, they're a really famous chef and then they write a book and it sells immediately because they have a built-in audience. Mm-hmm. What you're doing by being a self-published author or small published author, you're not just wasting your opportunity with that book. You're essentially building your audience around that. Be, so that you have a platform that can eventually get you traditionally published, or if it's just working well, just to stay where, where with what you're doing. Yeah. Gotcha. Yes. So, um, fun, sort of a fun interlocking question to you. Um, to how does that sound to you as an actor, the comparisons between 
those sort of middle tier things versus like YouTube where everybody's just acting and putting yeah. stuff at content yeah. on their own versus big Broadway productions. Is it is it kind of nice to have a lot of options in the middle tier or is it just more distracting? I think it is super nice to have those options. And when you do have those options, I don't know. I guess what's nice is that there's always the goal. There is a goal. You want that big agent to represent you. You want to be on that Broadway stage. There's that goal. And I guess when you think about it like that, there's never a goal because, oh, I got the agent. I got Broadway. What's next? A Tony? Okay, you win the Tony. What's next? All right, nothing. You're unhappy and miserable. (laughs) But um, that's a different (laughs) conversation. Um, But I think I like that there's a ton to do because also in my industry, everyone wants to work. It's like these agents are like, I want to get you a job. One, because they, that's how they get paid. And two, it's like, that's what they want to do. That's why they're doing it. That's what they like doing. They like getting people gigs. They like making people stars or Mm. whatever. Mm. So I like that there's a bunch of options from, yeah, I can do it myself. I can look up and get a gig myself. It's just hard. But yeah, it's harder, and then I don't have to pay anyone after it. I don't have to give Jack knife to anyone. <laughs> Self-censoring. <laughs> and Jack the knife. I don't have to. He's I, the sidekick to, to Toe Clipper, Claude the Toe Clipper. <laughs> no, Claude is not it. You don't know the Toe Clips, the Toenail Clipper's name. Oh, it's anonymous? It's anonymous. It's like a 007 type of thing. Agent TC. Agent TC. What's the agent name? There's a better one. Agent Clippy. Agent, Agent Clippy. Clippy. No, but that's then it's Clippy <laughs> from the Mac uh, Clippy. Agent. Is Clippy from anything? Yeah, the paperclip. One of the seven dwarves? Clippy. <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he, he just follows people around with a toenail clipper. <laughs> I'm going to get you. Hi ho. <laughs> oh, God. Hi ho. Oh, that's horrible. What have you created? <laughs> Oh man! No, but the toe wow. clipper, toes of grace. That's a hit. I've I've stumbled on something. <laughs> so uh, it is something. It I don't, is I don't something. know what you've stumbled on, but it is something that's <laughs> coming your path. Maybe I've tripped in something rather than stumbled upon <laughs> something. But uh, okay, yeah, oh. that's that's what I think. The agent, whatever. Uh, you bring up a couple things in there that remind me of of certain connections between these two topics. Um, there's the the thing you said about Broadway, how a lot of plays nowadays are repurposing songs that have been released as albums or, or other songs from really famous artists, and a lot of the stuff that's coming out isn't really original, even if it is good, even if it is watchable or well-acted or put on. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find that, oh, real inspiration in a lot of the shows that are being put out and musicals that are being put out nowadays. Yes. In the same way, that's sort of the the angle the film industry's had to take with like big blockbusters in cinemas. Those are the ones that are making all the money. There's mm-hmm. not a level playing field. It's either really big blockbuster or low budget indie film that has an audience. Yeah. Same with the publishing industry. It's sort of going through this polarity. It's maybe a little bit behind in terms of how polarized it is, but a lot of those majorly published books are the ones that not necessarily saying they're bad by any means. They're just very, very marketable. And they're the, uh, you know, the, the biography of this famous person, the, the autobiography of, of this famous person, the self-help tips of uh, Oprah, you know, let's <laughs> say. Like, that's going to sell. and Tip one, they're not be all a bad. billionaire. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I wish. <laughs> I wish. And I think, <laughs> but I think that um, when the industry's like that, it's easy for people to think that that's the metric of success. And it's almost, it's almost delusional to think of, for most people, to think of themselves as fitting in that same box as Oprah. You know, you have to find a path to get there, and the path to get there with reasonable expectations is not because your book is amazing or not because your acting talent is amazing. There are so many other factors that get you there, and I think the only way to really make the publishing industry work for somebody is to have really, really reasonable expectations, but not negative, negative feelings that diminish hope. 
if you find the value in the path that's set before you for your publishing path, if you if you understand the risks and understand the cons and are and are okay with that, then publishing is going to be very very rewarding because when people do read your book and come back app come up afterwards to say hey I resonated with that or that meant a lot to me or I'm going to recommend this to my brother-in-law let's say mm-hmm. that is a very great feeling and that in and of itself can be just as rewarding as getting to that big playing the big playing field not saying you shouldn't try for it though yeah because if that's what you're really working towards by all means just be reasonable about it yeah um i i think that uh the other thing that you brought up too that's really interesting is hmm i i think the the middle tier stuff that's available for acting in my mind is like local theater or oh that's middle de- tier like for the you like well local theater in the sense of maybe, well, maybe let's say statewide regional theater that's the, okay gotcha, right? gotcha, gotcha. yeah regional theater that is, or, yeah, or like middle. for acting for for film acting let's say maybe that's an easier comparison for me to draw it's it's indie movies it's mm-hmm. um the average like a24 film become uh, maybe that's a little more prestigious now but yeah it's getting those there. indie films that come out when it's it, getting there do for you sure. remember when a24 was the really like when it was really indie it's no longer like indie. Yeah. indie. do you remember when it was super indie yeah no definitely that was only like you know what five years ago too where yeah it's it, just yeah. like a24 maybe even off yeah i mean what a24 was moonlight if i'm not mistaken right i believe it was oh and if the, if I'm right about that, I I'm not positive. I'm looking. You know, at they them want now, an Oscar, their, so their movies. So what I the comparison? That's actually a perfect comparison. Let's just say, you know, whoever directed Moonlight, like whoever produced Moonlight. Sorry, let's say it was A24. Connor's checking it right now, but just working off of that, it, it is. There's that. Oh, it is A24. Okay, perfect. There, well, you have all, a company. Okay, hold up, real quick. All of the Ari Aster movies, Midsommar, Hereditary, and both the Robert yeah. Egger movies. So Lighthouse is... All A24? Yeah, they're A24. I'm get, it's, Except it's uh, that, The Northman's not going to be, I don't think. I but. don't believe so. I'm so hyped for that movie. But um, oh, me Minari, too. Mid-90s, great. Lady yeah. Bird, yeah. the indies. Okay, so... Right, so... But now, it's, now it's changing to less indie. Like, they just did the recent tragedy of Macbeth, which was not right. indie. Or The Green Knight. The Green well, Knight. Well, The Green Knight was a little bit indie. Not but really, yes, no. though. Well, they have a artistic flair, regardless yes. of what they yes. are. Artistic that's more of the flair. the vibe that they give off. And if that's something that you see your book as, you want it to be respected for the craft. There are the A24s of the publishing industry. There are the A24s of regional theater that can give you that experience. And if you're lucky, once you have that experience and pull it off, who knows? It might win that Oscar. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing it for that and not for the joy of that craft, that's you know that you want recognized in the first place, then that's when the reasonable expectations are all skewed and all yep. misaligned. So that's exactly. I think that's a perfect illustration. Acting. That's exactly similar. I tell people. I mean, not like everyone's like, what's your advice? But if people have advice, <laughs> or if people need advice, or they ask for it, if you want to do it. If you want to be an actor to be famous, you're not going to be an actor. Unless you're amazing, unless you're the greatest actor of all time, if you want to be an actor to be famous, you're not going to succeed. Yeah. No, that's that's honestly so fascinating because I don't even think that fame is an inherently bad motivation. I just think when it's the overwhelming like primary motivation or the only motivation, then mm-hmm. oh my gosh, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. And I know so many, you know, so many other podcasts have probably dissected that issue a yes. ton. But and it I, is a fascinating one, no less. I think there is a difference between fame and recognition because I, yeah, I'm an actor. I love doing it, obviously. But I also I would love that recognition. I don't have to win the Tony. I don't have to win an Oscar. But if people are like, he's a good actor. If people think I'm a good actor. That's so, yeah. that's a goal. That's one of the goals. You want, yeah, you want people to see you and for people to like you and enjoy you. I'm not talking like, because there's like Tom Holland and like yeah. Paul yeah. Dano. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Paul Dano is famous, but he's more recognized for being an amazing actor. I would rather have that than being 
the right. most famous person not that Tom on Holland. Earth. I don't want to be Tom right. Holland. And not to... Right, right. Yeah. No, I, I get exactly Tom what you're Holland. saying. He's great. But no, no, not by any means. He's. I, I think he's an amazing actor, oh, yeah. frankly. But I get exactly what you're saying where there is that, you know, he's reached that level where he's a superstar at this point. Yeah. And if that's what you're going for, you're probably not going to get it, mm-hmm. per se, if that's the only thing you're going for. And, uh, wow, you brought something up that I really like, too. Um, I do that. Recognition being being bigger and a separate, different motivation than fame. I think that's something, too, that a lot of authors need to be aware of as something that can be very rewarding because, honestly, having your book be a number one bestseller on Amazon is something a lot of different books actually can achieve, self-published books included mm-hmm. in a certain category. It's actually something that's a lot easier to achieve than than people would think. Um, that's probably less rewarding for most authors who get it than those one or two experiences where somebody has come up to them and said, I really like that book or that really nice review mm-hmm. that just nailed what's good about your book. That probably meant a lot more to that author is my guess. Yeah. And if you get to a certain level, having your peers at that level say, wow, that really was, that really was famous or just, you know, working off the assumption that not, not famous really was good. <laughs> working off the assumption that your work was good. Yeah. That that's, that's really rewarding. And it's different than having sheer numbers of people know what you are or buy your book that's a different thing entirely than having a certain number however many number of isolated experiences where people resonate with what you're doing and if you learn to be happy based off just the you know the few of those experiences you're getting if those can make you happy i don't think and you know i could be wrong because obviously i don't have overwhelming masses of people (laughs) resonating with with what i'm doing right yeah but i'd have to imagine that if you can't find yourself enjoying those experiences when it's just the few people you're going to have a hard time being happy when it's masses of people because I doubt it really changes it all that much. That's very true. That's very true. I, I've i talked to so many people in the, in the industry about that very thing because it is something that swallows actors whole. The famous ones, they're recognized. They're the most amazing actor and they're still not happy because they're not, they weren't happy at the mm-hmm. beginning. And they weren't happy with those compliments. And they're still not. When everybody loves them, they're still not. Is that a deeper issue in their psyche? Maybe. Is it something could they be, could yeah. have tackled earlier? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. That No, that's something, too, that could have tackled earlier. And I think if you're at a point where you're thinking of writing a book, and you're like, oh, I don't really need to think about all that. I just want to get my book made. Mm-hmm. The process of distributing your book and putting your work, whatever it may be, out there in any creative industry, it's going to come on you at a time maybe when you're not expecting it. That opportunity might pop up like it did for me. I was, an ex- I was not expecting for my book to be pushed out at the moment it was. I had a lot of other things going on in my life, but that's when the opportunity came. So if I hadn't have gotten my expectations in check, not that, not saying that I got all of them in check right away, mm-hmm. but if I hadn't have done that, I'd be in a much more unhappy place right now after this whole process is done because I'm like, wait, what the heck? Where's my New York Times bestselling author tag, you know? Yeah. Where's, why aren't the publishing houses clamoring for me now that I put mm-hmm. my book out in the ether? Uh, <laughs> to, veer, to veer into, <laughs> to veer into a, a slightly different topic with this, I think it, that's... Um, kind of fun a little more publishing experience uh, industry specific recently barnes and noble the massive book selling chain brand that i'm sure everyone is aware of really never heard of it um (laughs) 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 they actually have decentralized now i know that on surface like wait what does that mean yeah what does that mean basically i'm in the dark (laughs) normally i'm in the dark normally barnes and noble had a certain list of books that every bookstore was having in their shelves, and there was continuity between them, and there were only key regional differences, depending on, you know, what regional, like, chain of those books was being managed by somebody, and they get to decide on a few other books. Mm-hmm. Now, they haven't necessarily gone out and, you know, shouted it on the mountain so that everybody knows, but each Barnes & Noble bookstore, while, yes, they're incentivized by sales to have a lot of the same books... They'd be stupid not to have those New York Times bestsellers yeah, yeah, on their of shelves, course, of course. or those classics, or the yeah, you know the yeah, comics yeah, yeah, yeah. or the manga. But they get decisions about what books they're putting on their shelves. And I came about this first 
randomly just by chance because I was going to Barnes and Noble bookstores with a stack of books. Like I had a box of books and I was flying around to different cities <laughs> and going into different Barnes and Nobles and just being like, hey, you want to put my book on your shelves? Like, you know, get a couple copies for this for this um, Barnes and Noble. And I still thought it operated sort of at, you know, if I got it into a couple of Barnes and Nobles and it's already in their system, how long do I have to keep doing this for? Because I thought, you know, it just go on all the shelves. No, it is 100% a store by store basis. And you're wow. going to have one store tell you, you're going to have one store tell you now, yeah, I'll get three of them, put it on our shelves. Another store say, oh, hey, sorry, corporate said we can't do that, which that's their way of saying, hey, no. like, we just don't want it. No, which is fine. You have to be able to take that no. But it's fascinating now because what, what does that mean for the industry as a whole? That means, hey, the publishers who had full access to Barnes & Noble telling them, hey, you know, these are the books we want on the shelves and these are the books we're coming out with and Barnes & Noble just eating that up and having very little room mm -hmm. for leeway. Now, there's sort of going to be a little bit of a correlation between how much work, boots on the ground, phone calls you're making and how many stores your book can get into. Mm. So that is good news for a lot of self-published authors, for oh, a lot yeah. of smaller authors. For sure. It'd be Connor, it's, it's almost like if... <laughs> If, <laughs> I'm waiting for this analogy. This, <laughs> I'm, wait, I'm at the oh, edge of my seat. Oh, going to be a bad one. I'm already, I'm already laughing <laughs> because it'd be like if you made a mixtape and um, my toes of grace mixtape. Your toes of grace soundtrack mixtape. Yes. That's gonna go along with the audiobook. It's fire, bro. The 14-hour audiobook <laughs> uh, for the 900-page. Actually, that'd be more like a 36-hour audiobook. If it was a 900-page book, it'd be a long audiobook. Maybe I'm wrong about how long that was, but that's it'd be long, dude. So you'd have to have a pretty hefty soundtrack mixtape right there. I'm there. It'd be insane to think, you know, that you could if there was a store that just sold mixtapes. You know, most you know, it, you, a lot of people in their head might be thinking it's a big chain. Oh my gosh, you're going to give it to the to the head honcho, and they're either going to approve it tonight, and that's that, and you just move on to the next chain. It's crazy to think that the world's gotten to this point where the chains are like, no, it's best for business if we actually allow each store to kind of function and cater to the community. So that's a really mm. big development that I wanted to share with everybody. Something to, to be aware of as they go into yeah the publishing process. Absolutely. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, last other thing I'll say that's really publishing industry uh, specific, and this is not as recent of, of a development, but it is something that's going on. Uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble, too, a lot of these places, have um, self-publishing platforms that you can directly publish to. And the publisher I went with, for instance, took advantage of that platform. Now, a lot of... so that, Like that's in the a thing. negative like, way or okay, in a positive way? When no, in a positive way. Yeah, no, in a positive way. Like, they actually use that platform to get your book on Amazon okay. or Barnes & Noble because it's not limited to self-published books. It's just there for self-published books. Got it. Because cause, That's because why you could take took advantage of as, like, oh, he used it and then oh, yeah. ruined the system. Like, but no. Oh, no, yeah, 100%. No, that's <laughs> not what I meant. That's not what I was getting at. Uh, they just, like, saw it. They used it as an opportunity, which so many publishers are doing, and not necessarily the big publishers. So there's a lot of adaptability going on, and there's a lot of... I know, I know there's a lot of resources in terms of like freelance editors and stuff, but there's also a lot of resources in terms of how, you know, Amazon, which is the biggest bookseller in the world, or at least in the U.S., I think. Yeah. Uh, how they're opening up the floodgates for people to be able to put their stuff on there. And so that's why you get a lot of crappy stuff that's self-published, but you're also going to have those authors who have that good stuff who are able to put their stuff out there. And if I had some anything for you to take away, Connor, or for lots of people listening to take away... Yes, you can 100% judge a book by its cover. That's one of the things you can judge by its cover. A lot of my coworkers say that, and I have, I have to use that here. Mm -hmm. um, but just because a book is self-published or put out by small publishers doesn't necessarily mean it's low quality. That's not how the industry operates. And you can find gems that way. You can find really, really well-written books that that's just their path and who knows what direction they're going to take with the book and it's really it's really cool to read a lot of those books that are a lot of them are great and um yeah i just i would just put out hope for people who who want to write a book i highly recommend going for it if you have the right reasons for going for it yeah it's uh it's very it's very rewarding very fun it seemed very Do rewarding you watching you from the outside it was very rewarding for me watching you so i think what i don't i don't have a question i know the answer to this what i'm about to ask but i feel like the audience might want to know your story a little bit about Iberian claim. It's an interesting story. 
Do we have yeah, time? Do we have time for, for it? Do we? How yeah, much? I can. I can spend them. You know, maybe a couple minutes just telling people yeah. what what happened. Just with the that. timeline. Um, just, I think for, I'm talking timeline, like yeah, 2012 <laughs> timeline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I was in sixth grade, right? The tail end of sixth grade. It was back in 2014, and I had just done a school project on like American explorers, and one popped out to me. His name's Albar Nunez Cabeza de Baca. And that name popped out to me because I was like, what, what the heck is that name? And I did a little bit of research, but wrote my paper, but it stuck with me. And that summer after sixth grade, I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book about this dude. <laughs> and I just dove headfirst and wrote a hundred pages. And then I got to this point where I matured enough to realize, oh my gosh, if I'm going to write historical fiction, I should probably research it. <laughs> so, so I like deleted the entire book um, or I just put it, you know, put it off somewhere. I didn't never opened it again. Still haven't opened it. And wow. uh, then I did research. I read his account that he wrote, did like probably five or six months of just solid researching without writing. And then I started again. And that's when I got to this place where I was like really making a lot of mistakes because I was starting the first draft of the book and then going back and editing it. And it took forever to move forward. Yeah. And I was writing it on weekends in between school. And, you know, I'm still a kid. Right. So it, it was very slow writing process. But I learned so much the hard way, frankly. Mm -hmm. And a lot of agent querying. I probably queried about 30 agents before I realized the real nature of the industry and th and was honest with myself about what was the best path for me and who I was. And that didn't happen until late 2020, early 2021, as I was in college, you know, wrapping up college and like, okay, this is it. This is my time. I need to get the book out. And I found the publisher that I went with. And uh, within the span of eight months, I think, I rewrote what I had that draft of my book probably about probably about five times at least functionally wow if not more because there's so much editing and so much hard work that goes into it but it's it's a brutal intense process to get the book to where it's in a place where it's uh, readable and good and I can see where <laughs> a lot of people may not be may not realize that if they're just doing things on their own and don't have some sort of guide but it was very nice to have the support system and to get it out there and so my book Iberian Claim published uh, in late August of this past year, so 2021. And, uh, yeah, and so I have it in – thank you, thank you, thank <laughs> you, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, available anywhere. So if you are interested in reading it or hearing more about that story that I'm really passionate about, obviously, feel free to look it up anywhere. Not, not going to try and push it too much on this podcast, obviously, but yeah. it is what I've been doing. That's my creative field, and that's uh, something I'm very proud of. So I would hope that – people would enjoy it and l enjoy reading it. So, yeah. 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 Heck yeah. Well, I don't have any more questions. That's some, that's interesting. I never knew the publishing book industry was like that. I, I mean, I always assumed I, for some reason I assumed it's very docile when mm. Mm. it's not, it's as it, it's, it may not be as active as a like my industry, but it's certainly very similar, and in more ways than I thought. That's crazy. Yeah, it is shocking. That's something I realized too over the years. I was like, that really is similar to the other entertainment industries going on. Hmm, it's wild. Tumultuous too. A lot of adaptation. A lot of changes in the industry. Always. Yeah. Always tumultuating. Just because I got to plug myself a little bit, what what do you have going on in life? Your creative works. Just briefly, what 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 are you been what My have you been up to the last couple I months? I have recently written a play. Uh, I'm trying to send it to people, trying to get it done. I've had a lot of people look at it and tell me this sucks, this is good, that keep this, keep that, all that kind of thing. Vince included. Um, I came up. It was with, great. I came up with a thank you. It's really thank good. you. I came up with a name. And oh, I added did. a little bit so the name makes sense. It's called Leeches. Ooh. Because that name, you don't you don't know what it's about, you know? But yeah. You, yeah. it'll make sense. I edited it again, so there's more to it now. <laughs> Ooh, nice. Now I, I'm excited to take it. a look at it. Yeah. Now there are leeches. Now there are leeches. <laughs> <laughs> it's a horror comedy about a leech. And it's called... Um, Leech of Grace. 
<laughs> you have one idea that you're just selling always, hard. always something of grace. Okay, jeez, that was of grace was a genius idea, and I need, I need that. If right. we walk away with anything today, I think it's that idea. It's toes of grace. <laughs> if someone uh, can write, wait. actually write a plot line for toes of grace, it would make my year. Because I'm not writing the plot line for Toes of Grace. <laughs> I gave the outline. Are you giving them the idea? I give someone else the idea. This is free reign. Take Toes of Grace. I have some right. No. You can write it. I just need that cut. That you is now. I'll get you'll, some cash. You'll be like a traditional publishing house. You'll exactly. take 90 to 95% exactly. of the profits. And if you, I like it. You'll put it out there. Yeah. Just ask me first. I won't care. But if you do it without asking, I'm going to sue the shit out of you. If you do it without asking. You're done. You You're see, done. you try to touch You're the done. toenail clipping assassin. Exactly. And you got burned. You what know how he expect? assassinates? He clips too, a little too far and they bleed. <laughs> and then he just clips one more and they bleed out. There's like a secret tendon in your big toe. <laughs> Not your big toe, like one of the toes that if you clip a certain spot, they like go like limp. They lose all their motion <laughs> in their entire body. In the toe, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, 100%. And it kills you. I you bleed it. out because it's just gushing blood. I, yeah, you know what? If I knew anatomy more, I'd know whether this is a uh, sarcasm or not. But I honestly, <laughs> that's I, I, I shamefully, <laughs> I hate to shamefully admit, but I honestly don't know whether there's an important, there is uh, not, vital. You could, you could shoot your foot with a shotgun and blow <laughs> it off, and it would hurt real bad. But and you might bleed out because of that. But you, no, you'd, you'd be fine. It's a foot. Oh, they, people lose them all the time. <laughs> I'm laughing so hard I'm peeking my microphone oh, but geez. we gotta leave it in <laughs> I, I think I peeked my mic too <laughs> okay alright Connor you know you know what that sound is what's that in sound in the distance it's not Toes of Grace it's uh what, what is it what is it it's wait is it quick quick takes quick takes, takes. Quick takes. Time for it's quick, quick takes time. with Connor and Vince yeah <sighs> hoorah hoorah <laughs> okay so alright soldier Quick what takes are a quick take. We just we just take quickly. <laughs> steal from you. It's uh, this is the part of the episode where if you're listening, we steal. your entire bank account <laughs> goes into our podcast. We've home. hacked you completely. It, quickly too. You steal toes of grace. I steal everything. <laughs> Very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Should okay. have listened to us. That was your mistake. Yeah. All right. I. What's your? Do you want me to go first? Do you want to go first? What? Who has? Why not? Hit, hit me with it, Connor. Hit me with it. Doritos, sweet. <laughs> no, spicy sweet chili is hands down the best Doritos flavor. No question about it. Mm. And anyone wondering, that is the one with the purple bag and the Dorito on fire. Just a little bit on fire. It's so good. It's better than normal Doritos. It, but cool Ranch is nasty. Let's get that out of the way. Cool Ranch no is way. not it's it. Not nasty. Vince, it's not nasty. It's, it's not the best. No, it's not better than nasty. It's not nasty, man. It's not nasty. But Doritos spicy sweet chili is perfect. It's perfect. It's so good. It's, it's not too spicy. And it's a little sweet. Almost as if it's spicy sweet chili flavored. But it's so... <laughs> Good. It's the perfect <laughs> munch, constantly munching and crunching food, you know? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I wish I'd have tried it. I think I might have. You've never tried it? It? That much of an imp- it might not have left that much of an impact on me, that to be honest, Connor. I'm more of a... Sure. Mm. Oh, you definitely did. I definitely just peaked That's okay. Well, I'll say it again for you. You never tried it? Okay, there we can put that in <laughs> instead. <laughs> I'm going to keep the just peaking. Just there, folks. It's funny. Oh, yeah, we 100% have to. Sorry, folks, about your ears, mm-hmm. if that's hurting at all. Um, Suck it. But you know what You know what I just found out existed was the uh, Cheetos Puffs, hot flavor Cheetos Puffs. I don't know if those are new or not. Like hot Cheetos, but yeah, Puffs? Yeah, hot Cheetos Puffs, yeah. Huh. Those okay. sound delicious. I want to try one. Because I, I like Cheetos real. Puffs more I, than the regular oh, Cheetos. You, didn't you hate me for that, that, huh, don't you? Cheetos Puffs I do. are not as good. They're not bad. There's just... There's something about a big snack because they're not little. Those puffs are big. You can only eat one at a time. 
And I think the beauty of Cheetos is when you eat one at a time, each one of them is a little rewarding in its own way, you know? It's like I eat one <laughs> puff and it's like, and then it gets soggy and gross real quick. The Cheeto, I want that crunch. I want the crunch. I want to pick Cheetos it out of my teeth day. afterwards, you know? They fell off the assembly line in a different direction every time, and now they each have their own unique, yeah, how do they horribly do altered that? shape. How are they shaped know, like man. that? I really have no idea. Do you remember the show they How It's Made? Is that still on TV? Yeah. I don't know if it is on TV. It might just be like a YouTube thing now. Who knows? Oh, it is YouTube. They is need it? to do was Cheetos. It always YouTube? No, it was not. No, it wasn't. It was, it was in like the... No. Late nineties, early two thousands, I think, when that came out. Oh, it's that old. I, oh, jeez, oh, yeah. I never knew that. I watched oh, that dang, when okay. I was young. Ooh, did not know that. Yeah, I've seen a couple though. Um, yeah, it's there's also, I mean, for those of you who are into like YouTube, uh, YouTube content creators, you're gonna hate me. You're gonna laugh at me for this, Connor. Mm-hmm. But there's this creator. He's been around for a long time. His name is Video Game Donkey. Um, <laughs> he put out a video. He put out a video called No Video Today, and it's just a blank black screen. And it reminded me of this because it's it's all about, like, the creation of the Cheeto. And it's just an 11-minute long blank black screen of him telling the story about Bill Cheedler going on this journey to figure out how to make a Cheeto. And uh, it's awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. It, even if you don't want to listen to anything else on this guy's channel, because he definitely does have, like, a selective brand and, and audience and, and, and all that kind of stuff. That's It is hilarious. so funny. I love them. We have to do an episode where we talk about our favorite YouTubers. We really should. That's a good I think episode. That would be a good idea, actually. Yeah, because I, I definitely have some thoughts on on some good YouTube creators Same. that I think maybe some people haven't heard of. I also have some ones just... that are a little bit of a guilty pleasure. You know? Yeah. Oh, YouTube. has got the guilty pleasure. Itself YouTube. is a guilty pleasure. It is. I watch I too like, much yeah. YouTube. No, we definitely do that as an episode. I think that's a good idea. Cool. All right. I yeah. think it's your time for a quick take, Ben. Hit me with a quick I take. I think so. I think so. Um, I'm going to hit you with my quick take. Uh, my quick take is, hmm, more creative people should be in city planning or jobs in the government. Ooh. That's I think good. So. That's our best quick take I, by far. Besides, M&Ms aren't that good. Yes, and I'm. You think that? Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first quick thing. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, wow. Yeah. No, that's when you say that it's that w- like duh, but yeah, funny. I mean, there are creative people. When you did you did you? I mean, in architecture. Well, yeah. Let me let me let me expound upon what I mean there. Yeah. I'm not saying that people who work in government aren't creative already. That's not They're what I mean. Not. And by creative people. <laughs> By creative people, I don't mean just people who have creativity because I feel like everybody does to a certain extent. Yeah, I'm talking if you're like a you know an author on the side or a, you like enjoy participating in your local theater or you have like these sort of creative inclinations inclinations that you're actively pursuing. Mm-hmm. I would just as a personal thing, not really saying this is a thing that actually could happen logistically that or that's enforced. Obviously not. But it'd be really cool to see a lot more of those kind of creative minds taking up roles that often get called boring or pushed to the side for that kind of stuff because I think that it'd be really cool to see people implement really um just really cool ideas for you know making like cities more sustainable or or uh how how government websites look or how these types of things function and I think that'd be really fun to have that sort of creative talent backing how local governments and state governments kind of work and I'm, I'm thinking less you know I'm not talking like oh I want this actor to be the next president. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm just Ronnie saying, Reagan. Even though we, Ronnie Reagan, part two. That's not what we're getting at. That's not what I'm getting Dwayne at. Dwayne the Ronald I'm just Reagan. Saying, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the most cursed uh, thing I've ever said. Dwayne the Ronald Reagan. Dwayne the Ronald Reagan. It's like um, yeah. an idiocracy where the president is, what's his, he's like an actor or like a wrestler. Have you seen that I movie? I haven't seen idiocracy. The Mike Judge film? Well, there's. I've heard the, of it. I know what it's about. President, I love the president's name is like, it's like Dorito Mountain Dew. Oh, it's Terry Crews, right? Mountain Dew. Yeah, it's Terry Crews. Like his name is like a branding. Like his name is like a plug <laughs> for all these different brands. And I know one of them is Mountain Dew, 
And oh, God. <laughs> it's just awesome. And he's like an actor, but that's not what I'm getting at. That's, I'm just saying. That's amazing. It'd be really cool. And not in the creative way like those U-turn lights in Virginia Beach. Oh, my God. That's not what I'm getting at. God. Oh, I have to tell people about this. Actually, you could tell them better because oh, you, you drove man. it more than I did. So, God, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in a city. Whoever, <laughs> ever would do this. Ugh. So, there was this light. And, and to be fair, this intersection was notoriously terrible. It was terrible. Like... To begin it, with, yeah. To begin with, it, lots of accidents, and they needed to do something with it. And yeah. when you think, oh, there's a really bad intersection, what you do? First thing, maybe a roundabout? Yeah. Those actually, I believe statistically, when you put a roundabout somewhere, it does stop crashes. Like, it does. Because yeah, people don't know what to do, so you're way more careful. Yeah, they're hard, but they're, it's hard. Honestly, it's hard to crash at a roundabout. But uh, their idea instead, not kidding, no left turns, none. You're not allowed to do it. <laughs> instead, I know the audience is like, hold on. Yes, none, no left Wait, turns. What? You have Wait, to what? go to this intersection, cross. You have to go straight or right. You have to go straight. And then a bit later, they added another light specifically with a U-turn <laughs> lane. A U-turn light. Oh, that's ridiculous. So you had to take a U-turn. You had to. Like, oh, I'm trying to go to Mount Trashmore. That's such a Virginia Beach thing. I'm trying to go to Mount oh Trashmore. I have to take a U-turn. I have to... Uh, the funniest God. thing about it is the visual of the light changing colors and every single different color of it. It's literally the U-turn it symbol. It's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's an it's arrow going. Arrow it's a bendy arrow. <laughs> it is so ridiculous. It feels like you're on Sesame Street or some. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just feels like it, that. that's not what I was trying to say with my no. suggestion by any means. But to have a creative person behind the wheel of that decision, maybe maybe the person who did come up with that was really creative and just made the wrong choice. Uh, maybe, yeah, honestly, that feels like what it was, but it, to have somebody implement something like that would be really cool. Yeah. Uh, also Mount Trashmore for people who don't know really briefly. I got to throw out this side note too. Uh, where Connor and I grew up. Shout out Mount Trashmore. The highest point in the city of Virginia beach is Mount Trashmore. Wait, really? It was a giant. Yeah. The highest elevation point in the city of Virginia Beach. I don't know about now because I know they're building another There's one. There's another one, and it's huge, of, dude. It's massive. As of like five to ten years ago, the highest point in the city was, it's a very flat city, you know, very swampy yeah. climate. Gross. Uh, highest point was Mount Trashmore. It was a giant landfill, which they covered in dirt and built like a grass hill over. And then they opened it up as a public park, and it's literally the sign. It's not a joke. The sign is called Mount Trashmore. Yeah. It's it's honestly really and fun, honestly, and it doesn't smell like trash. It doesn't feel like trash, but there are giant no. poles sticking out of the thing that go like maybe fourteen feet in the air, probably more, probably yeah. twenty feet in the yeah. air. And I asked my dad when I was a little kid. I was like, "Why? Why do they have that?" And he was like, "Cause if they don't, it would literally explode. Cause the gas, like the, it's trash. There's like bad fumes yeah. in there. It would explode." <laughs> Yeah. But that's fascinating. Honestly, that's more of the thing I was talking about, too, is I think ideas like that are honestly golden. That yeah. idea, oh, you yeah. know, maybe it's not the perfect fix. It was a really cool use of space and a way to improve a city, and mm -hmm. I honestly do love that. Although they don't let people sled there, which is a crying shame. Yeah, that's the most whack that would thing. Be, it would be so fun to sled off that hill. I know no one else can visualize oh, yeah. what we're saying for the most part, but... uh yeah, if you ever get a chance, look it up on Google Images. Yeah, it's Think very about sliding fun. Down it's a trash cool board. spot. It'd be fun. There's a skate, but they added so much too. I remember when they added a skate park. There's a concert venue. There's um, there's a lake right in front. I'm pretty sure that's a man-made lake. It's massive. Yeah, I feel like it might be. It, it has to be. But yeah, they yeah. made it. They, there's a lake. It's a really nice park. Like, it's a genuinely nice yeah. park. And th I totally, now I get what you're saying. That's a good, that's a creative person in the governmental position doing something with the city. That's what we need. Exactly. You're totally right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just thinking about, it, I wish LA had uh, <laughs> uh, better traffic and better mm -hmm. transit systems, even though I don't live there right now. Yeah. Uh, yikes. I live in New yeah, York. Well, that was. And that is. 
the, <laughs> the plus of living in New York is oh yeah best transit system like ever and ever every New Yorker yeah, will complain about how oh the trains but no 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 it's everyone complains about the yeah. trains because they never run on time but um the, it's amazing the infrastructure it's based around this the subway yeah 100 percent. and it's also very yeah, yeah, easy just, to drive too it's gonna take a while but it's easy to find where you're going there's no way to get lost gotcha, in New yeah York. yeah it is it is pretty fascinating yeah. and for those cities that weren't built the same way it'd be fun to see people take a crack at getting them more in gear and more walkable more livable for the regular folk yeah like you and me like you and i Okay, so. I think that's it. Yeah, for this episode, I think that's it for today. Close us out, Vince. Thanks for listening. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope that you got something out of that whole experience, and um, that if you do steal toes of grace from Connor, you at least give him some money or some credit because yeah. uh, my man came up with that, and that's his. Uh, that's his. That's his baby. That's his child. That's my child. Don't mess with it. C-H-L-D right, child. That's his code name, too. Yeah. That's it's it. It's Clipper. It's child. The child. C-H-L-D. Okay. All right. Before I tell too many stupid jokes, I'm, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send off. <laughs> <laughs> Adios, everybody. Uh, goodbye.